meet founders who say, oh, I'm worried you're going to come in and try and take over and run my business. I think, God, I couldn't think of anyone worse to run your business than me. We're really busy running our business. We're backing them to run their businesses. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, still just a little bit outside of London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the Northern California coast. Hi, Bulent. Hello, Shelley. I can still see through your window behind you that the sun is shining. Lucky you. It's beautiful. Well, today, Shelley, we've got a brilliant guest. Um, his name is Jamie Roberts, and he's the partner for a firm here in the UK called YFM Equity Partners. And they are a private equity firm that invests in the startup uh, economy here in the UK. Uh, They're very active. They're a very old firm. They've been around for many, many years. And uh, Jamie runs the office in the south of England. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I'd like to hear from Jamie kind of the key differences, let's say, between private equity investment and VC investment and angel investment that you know all about. Yeah, I think these are important topics for our listeners, but not always things that people understand well. So it will be very nice to hear from somebody who is operating in this arena. And I'm delighted to say that Jamie Roberts now joins us from London. Jamie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, nice to see you, Jamie. Good to see you. Well, Jamie, uh, you're one of the partners at YFM Equity Partners, and I know you're based in London. Uh, can you just share with us um, what YFM do and what your role within the firm is? So YFM is a fund management business uh, founded 41 years ago, so 1982. Uh, the same year I was born, so it was a good good vintage. And YFM, since 1982, has always been doing the same thing. So investing in earlier stage, smaller businesses looking to do something interesting. So growing, uh, making acquisitions. That's been over different types of funds, different sorts of disciplines. Now we're focused on doing two very distinct things. So we've got about 700 million under management. About half of that money is venture capital trusts which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is a tax advantage scheme for individuals to invest in earlier stage businesses. So we've got a couple of hundred million of that money where we're investing into growth businesses, looking to go faster, probably loss making, raising the money to go faster and faster and take market share. We typically invest a million of ARR, upwards so a million of recurring revenue. They've probably got 10 customers. They've probably been through a renewal cycle and have got some good examples of product market fit. And we tend to be investing to help them build out their go-to-market strategy and to prove their go-to-market strategy before they uh, go onwards and upwards. And then the other half of our business is uh, replacement capital. So a bit more traditional management buyouts, private equity, if you like. So we tend to be backing management teams to buy their businesses off the founders. It tends to be the founders have built the business, done a great job. They've got to a point where they want to take a step back, realize some value. We're backing the next tier team to buy those out. So the money's being used for different things, but the businesses are pretty similar in that they're trying to grow fast. YFM itself, uh, so we've got offices, uh, London and Reading. We've got 
uh, Leeds, we've got Manchester and we've got Birmingham. And we think about ourselves as a regional investor. So a lot of the finance industry in, in the UK is based in London. Yeah. Uh, we, we sort of buck that trend a bit where we've got more outside of London than we have in London. Currently got a portfolio of 51 investments across a whole range of things. Definitely overweight to B2B enterprise SaaS. About half of the portfolio is, is software. And we're investing on the way in between three and 15 million pounds. And then in total, we can invest up to 20 million. Sounds great. My role in that, I joined YFM 11 years ago. I'm a partner. I head up the, our business in the South. So everything South of Birmingham is me. Everything Birmingham upwards is my colleague Ian. Uh, and I look after the investment team and the portfolio team uh, across London and Reading. I've got about 18 people uh, in my team sort of making the investments and then working with the management teams off. Could you just share with us uh, the different definitions around the different types of investors, especially here in the UK, but I, I know it's the same in North America as well. I think you position yourselves as private equity and there are venture capital firms, there are angel funds as well. Can you just sort of demystify all that for us? What's the main difference really between yourselves and a VC? Uh, so you, you have angel investors. Um, so it tends to be individuals probably made a bit of money and they're investing their personal wealth into businesses. Tends to be people they know or uh, sort of second degree connections in industries that they know and understand. So quite a disparate market. So finding angels is, is quite tough. There's a few collectives around the UK, some of them, some of them with absolutely great track records, but mostly it tends to be what we call friends and family money. So it's a, I founded a business, I'm looking to raise half a million to a million where do I get that from? Actually, the best chance of you raising that money is from people you know or your network that are as much buying into you as an individual. The next stage up from that is uh, in the UK is venture capital trusts, which is that's what we manage. Our growth capital money is venture capital trusts and they are uh, listed vehicles. So they're listed on the stock exchange in the UK. Uh, mid net worths can invest money into those VCTs. There's a tax break for doing so. So they get some benefits to their tax position. And, and those are collective capital pools, evergreen capital, so the money's there forever. And then people like us manage those funds on behalf of the investors, and we deploy those into businesses at that sort of million pound ARR, million of revenue, um, not, not startup, but perhaps not big enough to be raising big, scary VC money. Yeah. And then you get VC money, which is perhaps what everybody thinks about. So that's all the exciting stories of investing in Amazon, Facebook, Google, all that great stuff. And that's a very different pot of capital, a very different risk return profile. So they're investing in businesses to go really, really fast. That For every 10 investments they make, they're expecting one of them to repay the rest of the fund. And, and perhaps they're not too fussed about what happens to the other nine. Can I ask about uh, the, the actual due diligence that you would perform? How would you characterize the DD that you would go through versus the other forms of investors? It's quite intense. But it's not intense because we're checking and ticking back. I know that is how it feels for founders. And there's nothing I can say to them at the time that makes it feel any less painful. But we do reiterate, actually, everything we're doing today is to help grow your business. So we're going to get a load of outside people to look at your business who are used to doing this. We're going to look at your business. And we're going to come up with a load of things that we think and they think and hopefully the management teams think will help this business go faster. That's probably half of it. The other half of it is actually assuming the you know everybody does this for an exit at some point in the future, uh, even if it's a long way off. Getting the legal position right, getting the financials right, getting all the contracts right today 
when the business is at a million pounds ARR is much easier than doing it when it's at 100 million ARR and in 15 different countries. Where our diligence is about what can we find out that can help the business grow faster? And let's assume it goes really well. We want to have put in place the foundations we need for the business when it sells. I know that a lot of founders look at angels and say, okay, great, give me your money. Um, they understand that angels don't do the kind of DD you're talking about. Although I ran a couple of angel groups and we tried to do decent due diligence. How big a role do you play and what do you do with the company? Because I know a lot of founders are worried that once they get quote unquote institutional money, their hands are tied. They don't run their company anymore. It's run by the big guy. Yeah. So this is one of my areas of angst. This idea that, that VCs and, and private equity people are masters of the universe. We're all really good at adding up. That's what we do. Not many VCs and, and private equity guys and girls have actually started businesses and run businesses. So I always then scratch my head when I meet founders who say, oh, I'm worried you're going to come in and, and, and try and take over and run my business. I think, God, I couldn't think of anyone worse to run your business than me. <laughs> um, we run our business. We're a fund management business. We've got 700 million. We've got 51 people. We've got six offices. We're really busy running our business. Why would I want to run yours? And I fear it comes from perhaps the media perception of this Masters of the Universe, Wall Street, London Stock Exchange. I don't know if you know the story, Shelley, but there was a big retailer in the UK that got taken over by private equity and it's got some pretty negative, didn't go very well and has pretty negative connotations. And the media says private equity. And it's like for us investing three to 15 million pounds when we're backing entrepreneurs to do exciting things, all the way up to people investing in water companies at 10 billion pounds. And maybe it's different at that end of the market. At our end of the market, the biggest comfort the founders should have about taking money from people like us is we're backing them to run their businesses. And would you say from a comparable standpoint, the way you invest and, and the terms with which you invest in a company, they're going to be different potentially than a VC or not? Because I, you know, there is, again, this perception and probably based on some reality that a VC comes in with very, very specific terms that can potentially be difficult. Our terms are really easy. So management team founders come to us and they say, uh, here's our plan. This is what we're going to do. We know there's going to be bumps in the road, but we're going to go from A to B and this is how we're going to do it. And we say, brilliant, we want to go on that journey with you. Here's the money. And on day one, we give them the money. We do all the due diligence we want and it could be the best plan in the world, but unfortunately it doesn't always go like that. All those horrible bits that come with investors' money, unfortunately, is all they're all there because if it doesn't go from A to B or it doesn't go on a journey that looks like A to B and the investment starts to look like it might be tricky or we might be losing our money or actually there's lots of people around the table and some people think we should be doing some things and some people think we should be doing other things, then that's where those more detailed terms come from. I suspect our terms are pretty similar to most VCs. So over here, we have the British Venture Capital Association. They do a really good job, actually, of sharing sort of market standardized terms. So founders in the UK, if you're looking to raise money, if you go on the BBCA website, you can find what they determine as market terms. You know, there's everybody has a slightly different quirk on them, but most investors are sort of near or nearabouts to those. <laughs> Can I ask about 
the composition of the board of directors. Uh, I, I've been on the board of a number of companies and uh, sometimes those boards have been quite harmonious and very supportive and, and actually been uh, a force for real you know, positive growth, really. But I've also been around some boards where actually it's been a little bit toxic, if I'm, if I'm honest. What's your view on the right type of board composition and, and what influence do you bring when you invest in a particular company to ensure that that happens? So for us, we pretty standard when we first invest. So we're saying we'd like, we, we want to be involved in the strategic discussions in the business. We can't be operational because we, we don't, frankly, we don't know how to do it and we definitely don't have the time to do it. So we want to be there to talk about big picture things. We want to talk about uh, the journey we're on and, uh, and to talk about the journey we're on, unfortunately, we've got to spend a little bit of time looking backwards. So we need to talk about how did it, how did it go last reporting period how's it going now and actually what what does it look like going forward and what are the big uh, forks in the road decisions we're going to have to make as as combined stakeholders in this business for yfm that turns into 10 board meetings a year and then also two longer sessions where we just talk about strategy so i think a board meeting that's longer than two hours is too operational so a, a sort of normal board meeting where there isn't something strategic to talk about if that's taking two hours, I'm probably scratching my head as to why is that really a good use of time for everybody in the room. If there's a big thing you've got to talk about, then it could go on longer. If you haven't read the board pack, don't come. I'm quite a pedant, you know, and, and, and please don't read me the board pack because I can read. Yeah. And then I personal sort of angst around lunches at board meetings. You know, I don't, I, I'm not going for my lunch. If you want to bring your lunch, bring your lunch, but we don't need a board lunch before or a board lunch afterwards. You know, Jamie, if you serve wine at a board lunch, the subsequent conversation can be a little more open <laughs> sometimes. Yes, yeah. There's a social element, isn't there? We want to make, uh, we don't want to just be robots. We actually like spending time together. But I quite like doing that deliberately. I think you should socialize as a board and you should socialize with the founders, but you should go to socialize. So we're going to go out for dinner. We're going to do that, and that's going to be a, a, a pleasant evening where we get to understand each other a bit more. Let's not try and mix up a social board. You know, the board's the board. And it, it is all about creating an environment. For me, I think the best thing that people like YFM do is create an environment for founders to spend time on the business rather than in the business because there's always a fire to fight. There's always something to do operationally which stops you actually doing the strategic thing that's going to add value that week. We've all done it. I've got my to-do list. Well, I'll do the 99 board, the small things rather than the one big thing. I think people like us encourage and, and sort of force in a way for founders to focus on those big things that drive value. That's the value of the board for me. Your specific question around what what does what's the best makeup of a board? The right people in the room at the right time. I think you do need a non-exec chair. Somebody who's done what you're trying to do. It doesn't always need to be sector. Somebody who's done what you're trying to do. The CEO should obviously be there. We want the numbers person there, the CFO or, or the FD. If the business doesn't have a CFO or an FD, let's get the FC in. We should have the numbers person in the room. Probably going to have an investor. You don't want loads of people like me in the room because we're all a bit similar. And then beyond that, smart people who can help you answer the problem of the day. But we don't get too caught up on how many board seats should people have and how many do we want? How many do the founders want? How many do the other? It's just about actually let's get smart people in there. 
On this podcast, we've uh, we've had quite a few investors in season one and season two, and we also asked what are the typical mistakes uh, that, that founders make, uh, usually in pitching for money. But could I slightly change that and ask you what typical founder mistakes are made after the investment is made? We're saying to, to the founders, actually, we think having this board that's going to help you spend time on the business rather than in the business. And then a struggle that the founders get it wrong surely we should be we, we're getting it wrong together if that board's working and it, then it's collectively all of us either doing it too slow or too fast we've all sat there and and said well we actually all knew the difficult decision we had to make four months ago mm-hmm. why did we delay it and delay it and delay it so there's that bit where i think we sometimes can second guess ourselves a bit too much yeah the other one i sometimes think we can all get a bit too caught up on uh, early signs of positivity too many times I've I got excited because I've been on a board and we've made we've got seven sales in the US. We're like, right, let's open an office, let's recruit fifteen people, and then you sort of go, well, yeah, but the sales in the US were in seven different states. It's really interesting, isn't it? The narrative of where the founders go wrong, and isn't that fascinating? That if something's going wrong, we sort of didn't see it coming, we didn't spot it, or all those different things. Sometimes I think founders should be a bit more pointy at us and go. Like, why didn't you tell us we were doing this wrong? Yeah, but they're the acceptors of the money, so that's a hard one. But I have a question about, um, well, we had COVID. We emerged from COVID. It's still been a tough year for investment. I mean, I just see this all over. Number one, what's your outlook on why? Or do you disagree that it's been an okay year just maybe too much clutter and and so certain people aren't getting invested in. Somebody accused me the other day of being a toxic optimist, <laughs> which I never, I'd never heard that phrase before. I thought it was one of my biggest traits was that I'm an optimist, but I don't think it's any harder to raise money now than it was two years ago. The price is different. The terms are different because there's less money. So we, we're trying to make 15 investments this year. So we've got a lot, we've got a lot to do. Um, when we find an investment we really like, it's just as hard to win it as it was two years ago. So I suspect the reality is that the really great, the really solidly great, well-prepared, well-networked, have done all of the all of the things you have to do to be ready to go and raise money. And they've got really good traction and they can tell their story really eloquently and really well. I think those founders are still finding it quite easy to raise the money. I think it's the less prepared, the less advanced, the less proven that when money was free, it was a bit easier because there's so much money chasing. I think those founders are, are definitely finding it tougher now. But then pricing is really changed. You know, two years ago, money was free. Lots of people that we know are friends who took money at massive valuations. And then they now have the the opposite problem of they're sort of sitting there trying to convince their investors that down round's okay. And, and really, the last round was wrong. So it's not a down round. Actually, the trajectory, you know, pricing trajectory is still going up. That's right. And uh, prospects for for the rest of 2024 and, 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 and beyond? What, how, how do you see things? Back to my toxic optimism. I, I think the media, so we've just re- uh, released our report, The Entrepreneur's Economy, where we've looked, we've gone out and we've looked at this, this thing that we think about as entrepreneur's economy. Um, in the UK, we bucket things as SME or big companies. Uh, and we've, that's always vexed us a little bit as to is that right? Um, and, th- and it's not right because there is a whole section of people building businesses um, and entrepreneurs doing the things that, that we've been talking about. That survey was sort of 550, 600 people came back to us with their thoughts. They're all pretty positive 
on average, they're expecting, I can't remember, 17% growth, increasing hiring by 21%, because GDP might be up, might be down, interest rates might be up, might be down. But if I've got a business with 2 million ARR and 20 customers, if I could find another five customers, I've increased the size of my business by a quarter. I sit with founders who say, well, yeah, the economy is really bad, but there's a thousand potential customers. I've only got to find five. I've just got to sign five more customers. My product's wicked. Signing five customers isn't hard. Signing five customers has nothing to do with what the interest rates are and, and what GDP is. So I'm toxically optimistic. Uh, and most of the people I talk to are because they're not worried. You know, if I was running Tesco in the UK, you know, the massive supermarket, then you have to worry about what consumer spend's doing. But if I'm running a little, uh, you were looking at a, a food business at the minute, really interesting, uh, like health business, if that market's growing like 30% a year, doesn't matter, you know, doesn't matter what GDP's doing. More and more people are concerned about the food they're putting in their body and how it impacts their gut. That's great for them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm bullish. We're still recruiting people into YFM. We've just closed our biggest buyout fund. We're mids raising our the next slug of our growth capital fund. We're raising the listed vehicles. So they raise money. Sort of the money comes in weekly. It's coming in faster than it's ever come in. Portfolios really is in pretty good shape. We trade buyers coming all the time. They're distracting us because they want to buy our businesses. We sold <laughs> a service provider called uh, DSP. Been on a fantastic journey with that. Sold that to another private equity firm in the UK. So a secondary transaction. Yeah, it's a great transaction. Yeah, and they're going on to do greater things. Well, that's so encouraging to hear that. And in fact, some of that bullishness, uh, I, I read in your report, the Entrepreneur Economy report that, that you produced quite recently, which I, I thought, I have to say, Jamie, was an excellent report. And from a UK point of view, uh, it broke it down into the regions, which again was really interesting. So I would encourage all of our UK listeners to track it down and, and have a read. Can you just summarize what some of the key findings were from the report? And, and was there anything that really surprised you? It surprised me that there's so many people out there who, despite this continued negativity in the media and, and politics in the UK is pretty negative, it has been for too long. Um, there's still lots of people sort of really trying to do entrepreneurial things. I think anybody who goes and starts their own business is super brave and super bonkers because the success rate is so low, right? So I have huge admiration for, for anyone who goes to do it. And I'm, I'm jealous of people who are brave enough. Uh, and I think it's fantastic that so many of them are so, uh, they're sitting here today, despite everything we've been through for the last three years, despite how hard we're sort of told it is on a daily basis. And they're still expecting to grow their business by double digit percentages. Some, some interesting stat, I sort of throw some numbers at you. So we think there's 1.1 million entrepreneur-owned businesses. So these sort of owner-managed business with a handful of employees who are, who are actively looking to grow fast. We think they generate 950 billion of revenue a year. So it's huge. Like, just think about that as a, it's humongous. And yet any half-decent newspaper in the UK, 90% of what it talks about is the FTSE 100. How important is the FTSE 100 to the UK economy? I'm not, I'm not sure it's anywhere near as important as this sort of entrepreneurial economy. What do you think about when you look at the U.S. Uh, and the experience there, both investing and starting companies and growing companies and what's going on in the U.K.? What do you see as similar and what do you see as different? Uh, my wife and I took the two boys to the U.S. for the summer for three weeks. And I guess that so it's interesting when you talk to a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old who sort of, you know, isn't it bigger, faster, scarier, louder, brasher? 
I can't remember the name. It's a Brit who'd had a startup. Shelley, you'd met him as a, he was raising money. You met him as an angel. He was on your podcast. Oh, probably Raj. Yeah. And and he sort of talked about, as he came over to the US, US as a kid and everybody wished him a nice day. He summed it up so beautifully. Everybody wants everybody to do well. Whereas in the UK, perhaps there's a bit of snobbery towards new money. Um, you know, money's sort of a thing you don't talk about uh, in the US. Like being rich is cool. Say, like, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to make loads of money because I like nice stuff is acceptable. It takes me to about meeting three or four when I meet a, new, a founder in the UK and they're looking for money. It often takes ages when I say, so what does success look like? None of them ever say, I just want to be rich. You know, why not? You're going to pay loads of tax, you're going to employ loads of people. Saying, actually, I do want to make loads of money. It's just not a very British thing. So I'm jealous of I'm jealous of American optimism. Go and check out episode two of season one with Raj Singh, because that's what Jamie, Shelley and I are talking about. And that was an excellent episode. Uh, Raj took us back to his childhood. And I'd like to take you back to your childhood, Jamie, if that's OK. Um, what would a kind of, let's say, a young teenage Jamie Roberts be thinking? What were you like as a as a teenager and quickly chart your your journey to now a master of the universe although you don't think you are uh, so so i grew up in a town called corby in northamptonshire so an old steel town um so for, for shell you know the uk had all this amazing industry uh, during the, the sort of 70s and 80s that that got shut down for all sorts of reasons uh, and corby was a, a the steelworks employed god knows you know 80 90 percent directly and indirectly so town went through a massive slump um, and was quite a tough place for a long time. Uh, and I grew up on a council estate in Corby. Uh, my mum and dad bought a house under Thatcher. So if I didn't say that, my dad would be cross. So he did own, you know, they owned their own home, but it was on a council estate and it was tough. You know, mum and dad had sort of proper jobs, sort of working class jobs. Money was tight. I went to the local school that my brother went to. One of my best friends still I went to nursery with at two. Because you just, if you live in these little communities, you just, Will grow up together so it's lots of positivity about it i wasn't particularly that smart at school i wasn't particularly studious um i sort of got by a bit of a cheeky chat so my mum died when i was 14 which was obviously super sad but that gave me an excuse to be even worse i spent four or five years with everybody apologizing for me and it was probably the worst at the time it was the right thing to do but probably the worst thing and then i sort of scraped through my gcc scraped through my a-levels managed to get a place at Bangor University in North Wales, which is a great university, but it's not Oxford, Cambridge. Uh, I went to Bangor, I met my now wife, uh, and I realized that she was super smart and super ambitious. Uh, and if I wanted to continue to have a, a girlfriend like that, I probably need to buck my ideas up. Uh, so that was sort of the turning point for me in deciding actually, I do want to make something different for myself. I got my first job was on a grad scheme, a bond trading house. Uh, so trading government bonds. So you up charging five, 10 year bonds. I didn't really like it. I wasn't very good at it. I left before they pushed me out because um, I, I didn't, I didn't like it. They didn't like me. I wasn't great at it. Uh, so I went to RBS as an analyst at RBS. I got a call from a headhunter about a year in uh, to go and join Lloyds Bank. It was pre-crash. So they offered me 50% more money. So that was an easy decision. And I went to be an oil and gas analyst, which is pretty dull, but taught me a lot of stuff about numbers. And more importantly, I met a chap called Duncan Parks, who was running Lloyd's restructuring team. Uh, this is 2006. He said, come and join my restructuring team working with businesses that are in distress. So I got there sort of 2007-ish, 
And I was like, well, this is going to be pretty good fun. And then the financial crash happened and I happened to be in the right place at the right time and worked with some amazing businesses who were going through some pretty traumatic stuff, sort of t- helping turn around these businesses. And that was the point I decided, actually, I want to go, I want to be more involved with the businesses and the closest thing you can do to that without running them or, or working in them, I found was private equity. So went on this journey to find a private equity house that shared my values. So, you know, this Masters of the Universe thing, I'd, I'd hate anybody to actually think that about me. Um, so I couldn't work. I'd, I'd meet people and, and then, you know, they didn't want to employ me, so I didn't have to make the decision. But I'd meet firms at interviews and I'd sit there and go, God, I really don't want to be you. Um, and then they didn't offer me the job, so it's fine. Um, and then when I met Dave Hall, who runs, who ran YFM at the time, he's chairman now, David Bell, who headed up portfolio and, and Paul Cannings, who headed up the investments at the time, I just, I sort of came out thinking, I want to be like them. When I'm old, like they were, they're even older now. But when I'm old like them, I want to be like them. And then for the last 11 years, we've been building this thing. It's inspirational. You know, you you came from a background that didn't necessarily just automatically plunk you into the job you have today. So, Jamie, we've, we've looked back. Uh, can we now look forward? I mean, what's your perspective for the next three to five years in the world of entrepreneurship in general. And amongst your views, what advice can you give present day founders that will have to sort of navigate that period of time? Uh, so let's do it in reverse. So, so my advice to founders is, is keep going. There's an amazing book on grit. It just sort of talks about, you know, being a founder is sort of the equivalent of getting up every morning, getting punched in the face and then going to bed and getting up in the next morning, going again. And the people who do that have something that I think is called grit, keeping at it. Um, it's always a bumpy road. So that'd be my that'd be my day-to-day advice. I guess then in terms of raising money, there's loads of people like us trying to give money or, or invest money into early stage businesses. And there's loads of early stage businesses looking for money, but the market's so inefficient. How do we all find each other? Um, and I say we get a couple of thousand pitches a, a year across our business. And, and of those couple of thousand, sort of 1,200 of them are relevant to what we do. And, and we're really open on our website about the sorts of things we want to see. So I would encourage founders to actually do that little bit of extra work before you send a pitch to somebody. Just have a look. Are they actually the right investor for me? Because if you scattergun your pitch out, you could end up wasting quite a lot of time. And then what, what do I think about the next three years? That's just what a great, like the technological evolution is that, that's here and is coming. Really, really exciting. I'm not, I'm not particularly techie, right? So all the, the younger guys in my team keep talking about AI in the way that I used to talk about the internet to my dad. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, that's all really super exciting, cutting edge tech. But there's a load of stuff. There's how many businesses do we all see that still run stuff on Excel? The amount of software that's still to come and still to be embedded. It's just like there's huge, huge opportunities uh, in the UK. And I, we, we just need a bit of stability. That's the thing I would hope for most is some... Uh, political stability for people over the next few years here. Absolutely. Well, well, well. that pretty, pretty much brings us to the end of the conversation, Jamie. And so I, I really want to thank you for your time today and for all of your insights. Uh, you know, if, if people listening to this particular episode are inspired, I'm sure they will be by your story. I want to get in touch either with yourself or with YFM. How should they do that? My contact details are on our website. So uh, yfmep.com. So yfm ep.com so they're all on there uh, i'm on linkedin so jamie roberts yfm what does yfm stand for jamie so yfm uh 41 years ago was founded in yorkshire 
so north northeast England. Yeah. So it used to be called Yorkshire Fund Managers. Okay. And as the business grew out of Yorkshire, we had to change or pre me, they had to change the name. So very, very innovatively, it went from Yorkshire fund managers to YFM. I thought it was something like young fund managers or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> I wish. It probably was when I started. Well, look, Jamie, it's been, it's been an absolutely brilliant uh, conversation. So we thank you again for your time and uh, appreciate it. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks. Shelley, I thought that was a great interview with Jamie and absolutely spot on in terms of him giving out lots of really helpful and useful information. Yeah, I felt the same way. There was so much there and so much concrete, important perspective. I tell you one of the things that I found very interesting and he addressed it head on is, you know, many companies when they think of having a VC invest in them, this is a big step, but they're also somewhat afraid, that's my term, because they worry that the VC is going to come in and run their business. And what Jamie said very clearly was, he said, we're not going to come in and run your business. We are not masters of the universe. He said, it should be a partnership. Uh, He said, sometimes due diligence can feel really painful. It's very intense. But the point of it is to help the company grow. It's kind of like hard love in a way. He also, you know, talked about boards and he had kind of an interesting perspective on boards. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I was keen to ask him about that because I've had mixed experiences with boards, some good ones and I have to say some quite challenging ones. And so it was good to hear him talk about that. And, you know, the fact that he feels it's uh, there should be a separation between the social side, finding the right people on the board is really, really important. And especially if you bring in external people as well through through funding. He also talked about the investment environment, which is one of, you know, one of those topics that's very timely these days because you know you hear the media can be very negative, politics are going on. In Jamie's view, he said, you know, it's really not that much harder to raise money today. It's competitive, of course. Valuations are somewhat under pressure. Again, that's my terminology. But, you know, you have to still be smart. You have to do your homework. But he felt very positive. He called himself a toxic optimist, which I love that phrase. I think it's great. Yes. But he said, you know, basically, with all these things going on, politics and, you know, the GDP up or down or whatever, startups aren't day-to-day affected by that. They're still having to raise money, still having to gain customers, still having to grow. So I thought that was a very interesting and actually kind of reassuring perspective. And it comes back down to founders doing, doing the basics and doing the hard things and being focused, just keep it going, get the housekeeping in order, stay focused on doing the fundamentals, doing the right things, growing the business, you know, communicating, reporting back and uh, and keeping going. I mean, he used this phrase, grit, just keep going because, you know, the life of a founder, as we know, is challenging and there will be ups and downs. So it is important to keep going. And I loved his description as well of an entrepreneur. He said that he he was very in awe of founders, really, and he called them super brave and super bonkers. So for the American audience, describe bonkers. Basically a little bit mad. Absolutely crazy in a really good way, yeah. 
next time on Startup Sensations. Human beings are very good at filling time. I will go into meetings and say, what are we here to achieve in this next 30 minutes? If we cannot define it, let's abandon the meeting. If you're about to write an email and you cannot clearly say in the title, what is the objective of that email? Don't write the email. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast.